Politics, Politics, and Life Sciences Radio, also known as PLS Radio, is a show about the interplay of life sciences and politics. PLS Radio is hosted by Dean L. Finelli, Ph.D., an intellectual property attorney in Washington, D.C., whose practice focuses on issues connected to the life sciences industry. PLS explores cutting-edge topics involving the biotech and pharma ecosystems, political and governmental policy issues affecting the biotech and pharma industries, and much more. PLS guests include scientists, business, medical professionals, media personalities, newsmakers, and political leaders. Politics and Life Sciences Radio is your place for hot topic discussions and real news in the life sciences industry. Now, it's time for Politics and Life Sciences Radio with your host, Dr. Dean L. Finelli. Good afternoon. This is Dean Finale with Politics and Life Science Radio. Thank you for joining us today where we talk about all the issues in the life science industry. I am very pleased today to have as our guest, Professor John Hoberman. Professor Hoberman is a professor of Germanic Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. He's also the author of The Olympic Crisis, Sports, Politics, and the Moral Order. Uh, before we bring on Professor Hoberman to talk about uh, some of the issues that are going on in the Olympics, particularly as it relates to uh, what seems like a every four years we're talking about the same issue, this doping of uh, Russian athletes. So, but what's going on in the life science industry? Uh, it looks like at least maybe not uh, where the data is, but at least as a society, it looks like we're starting to move past the uh, Omicron variant and through the pandemic stage, uh, treating this more, as an endemic situation similar to flu. Um, there is uh, reports of a subvariant. I hate to be the uh, bring that up because no one wants to hear that. Everyone's looking forward to getting back to normal as soon as possible. But I think it just really brings up one of the difficulties that we've seen throughout the pandemic, and it really is the, the messaging that's been going on. This has gotten entirely political. We see on the one side uh, of the aisle, arguments why masks shouldn't be worn on the other side of the aisle, uh, why it's still necessary to wear masks. And unfortunately, the scientific data, which really matters, is sort of taking a back seat to the politics. Uh, and when we think about the, you know, talk about this potential subvariant of Omicron that's out there, uh, certainly not to concern anyone. You know, when we look at flu, for example, uh, some years, you know, there are in the 10,000 death range, some years it's 50,000. Uh, certainly, you know, a five times event of deaths would characterize that as very severe, but it's something we deal with. And similarly, you know, I think we have to keep this in perspective. But the concerning part is that, you know, if you look at certain um, news organizations, they're reporting about this subvariant. Uh, more conservative organizations aren't even talking about it. So, you know, that's a real concern where we shouldn't be filtering information based on our politics. And that's what we try to do here at Politics and Life Science Radio, filter through some of the politics and get to the factual uh, information that's important to people. Uh, the There are four states that still have mask mandates in place. Uh, the rest of the country are removing their mask mandates, uh, which certainly, you know, we're all tired of wearing these masks and that's good news. But you know, having mask mandates certainly doesn't mean you can't wear a mask. If it's someone, if you're 
sick, if you think you're uh, at a higher risk uh, or you know you're at a higher risk, you should wear a mask. People have to act reasonable. You know, we're still in the midst of this, uh, although we know Omicron is less severe, much more contagious appears, but less severe uh, than the Delta variant. It remains to be seen how this uh, new subvariant will play out. It's supposedly more contagious, uh, but we'll have to see uh, how severe it is. But again, you know, we could get through this acting reasonably without the politics and all the uh, histrionics that tends to go along with that. Uh, the CDC is also set to loosen up mask guidance uh, as early as next week. So we'll see where the CDC comes down on this. Uh, we know there's been a lot of mixed messaging coming out of the CDC. It seems like you know, some of the messaging and when it comes to masks and other advice has been a little uh, late to get out there, but it looks like they're trying to correct that. Pfizer has pulled its FDA request to authorize a two-dose shot for children under five. Uh, we know the Pfizer vaccine is authorized for children down to five-year-old, uh, but no vaccine has been authorized for children below five. Pfizer has been testing a two-shot and a three-shot dose that's a fraction of the amount given to adults uh, remains to be seen. Uh, they're going to wait to uh, provide that additional data uh, regarding their three-shot dose before they, that was the basis for withdrawing uh, this information. They want to check the data for a three-shot to see if that uh, works a little better than the two-shot dose in children under five. So uh, certainly parents, you know, there are children out there. We know the, the Omicron variant does infect children at a very high rate, but generally speaking, um, throughout the pandemic, we've seen that children are less likely to uh, suffer the severe symptoms or wind up in hospitals. Nonetheless, there have been uh, reports of that, and especially, uh, you know, when we think of kids with pre-existing conditions like asthma or obesity, you know, those are kids that would definitely uh, be helped having a vaccine uh, for children under five. Uh, one of the things that really is concerning uh, and sort of an ancillary effect of this whole politicization of the vaccines is this anti-vaxxing movement. Uh, we, we know it's always been out there. A small percentage of people in the U.S. either cling to incorrect data about vaccines causing autism or are just anti-vaxxers because they, they you know, don't believe in putting things in their body, whatever the reason is. Uh, the percentage of people considering themselves anti-vaxxers uh, across the board, not just when it re relates to the uh, coronavirus vaccines, but vaccines in general, uh, the percentage of vaccine anti-vaxxers has gone up, which is very concerning. Vaccines, you know, children have, sa have saved millions of lives, uh, prevented millions of crippling disorders. So, you know, it's really, hopefully that's just a temporary blip uh, in this, news cycle, but, um, you know, it, it is very concerning when we think about not only is there starting to be this hesitancy uh, or continue to be this hesitancy when we're talking about vaccines for the coronavirus, but that's bleeding into hesitancy and anti-vaxxing uh, movement as it relates to the typical vaccines we give our children. Uh, another related issue in the life science industry that's really been very topical recently is the talk of you know, the Russian ice skater who tested positive back in December during the Russian skating championships uh, after she did a, a pretty much flawless routine uh, during her uh, Olympic uh, trial. She it was released that back in December, one of her results 
uh, test results showed that she tested positive for what's considered performance enhancing drugs. Uh, I'd like to bring on our expert now, uh, Professor John Hoberman. As I mentioned, uh, Professor Hoberman is a professor of Germanic studies at the University of Texas at Austin. He's the author of The Olympic Crisis, Sport, Politics, and the Moral Order, and many other publications on sports and politics. Uh, he was re recently featured in The Hill uh, and talking about doping uh, and how it's plaguing the Olympic Games. Uh, Professor Hoberman, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for your invitation. So when we talk about this, you know, it seems like every time the Olympics pop up, um, you know, we hear about these Russian doping scandals. Is this, is this just something we have to deal with or why, why can't this be cor corrected? Or, I mean, it seems like this woman or not even woman child tested positive in December yet was allowed to enter the Olympics. That is uh, a very good question. The, uh, the sort of chain of custody of the, the knowledge of the presence of uh, this drug that is banned by the World Anti-Doping Agency uh, for elite athletes, uh, th that is unclear at this point. But I would like to reframe uh, this doping scandal in the following way. The media attention is almost entirely on an elite athlete who, as you point out, is a child, she's 15 years old, uh, and on the, the substance, which is medically legitimate as, as, as a heart medication. The, the, the framework in which this happening, is happening uh, is political. Uh, it is sports political. And when you look at the chain of events, Camila Valieva, would not be going through this traumatic episode and the the olympics uh which didn't belong in in china in the first place for human rights reasons but at any rate there they are this would not be happening if it were not the case that the international olympic committee and its two branches the world anti-doping agency and the court of arbitration for sport had not cut the Russian penalty for the, the huge 2014 Sochi Winter Olympic doping scandal uh, in half. The, in 2020, the World Anti-Doping Agency said that Russia should be excluded from everything for four years. Then it went to the uh, IOC-affiliated Court of Arbitration for Sport, and for, for reasons we do not understand, uh, well, I think I understand it to some extent, that ban was cut to two years. That is a scandal. What Putin and his people did in 2014, uh, in the case of this, this notorious, elaborate, uh, you know, urine sample substituting uh, arrangement uh, whereby uh, Putin could be assured that his doped winter athletes ran up the highest medal count, which, which they did, this, this should have exiled uh, Putin, who cares very much about winning Olympic medals for political prestige reasons, the, the, a responsible IOC uh, should have kept the, the Russians out of there for years. Uh, the the four-year ban would have hurt. It would have been two Olympiads. And yet, at the end of the day, behind closed doors, the IOC uh, met with the, the Court of Arbitration for Sport, that ban is halved to two years. The result, uh, 
is that Vladimir Putin is allowed to send more than 500 Olympic athletes to Tokyo in 2021 uh, and to Beijing in 2022. So at the end of the day, that is why this is happening, because the International Olympic Committee is intimidated uh, by Vladimir Putin, uh, who, in a certain sense, is the most powerful sort of sports gangster in the world. Uh, my guess is that the IOC president, Bach, uh, whom we remember smiling and waving and putting his arms around Putin at the end of the 2014 Sochi Games, I consider him to be a Russian asset. And my guess is that when Bach uh, saw that four-year ban that the World Anti-Doping Agency wanted, I mean, he broke out in a cold sweat and said, there's no way uh, I can tell Vladimir Putin that he's not coming to the next two Olympic Games and he's not going to be in Qatar for the next uh, Soccer World Cup. And so you get this, this scandalous uh, cutting in half of the ban to two years, which allows uh, Putin to send all those athletes to, to the Olympics. All right, now you come to the, uh, the doping part of it. The, the happy assumption on which the World Anti-Doping Agency negotiated with uh, Putin's sports people uh, after the scandal of 2014 had been exposed not by the World Anti-Doping Agency, but by the German journalist, Howard Zeppelt. Uh, the, these agencies are very bad at detecting major doping events. It is the police and the journalists who step in and actually get the work done. But the, the point is that the negotiations between uh, the, the Russian uh, authorities, the Russian Olympic Committee, uh, their excuse for an, an anti-doping agency, which is called Rusada, was led by a very naive uh, Scotsman named Sir Craig Reedy, who was the, the president uh, the leader of the World Anti-Doping Agency but 20, between 2013 and 2019. And so he, of, of all people, a, a naive man who, who could not understand the, the, the gangster-like uh, tactics which Putin and his people use in order to, to maximize uh, their space and their prominence in the world of international sport. The, so that WADA comes up with a... Uh, four years, which and is going to get kneecapped by the International Olympic Committee and, and its president, uh, Tom, Thomas Bach. This is this is what's actually happening. That the behind the scenes uh, deal making, uh, the intimidation of the International Olympic Committee uh, by the the Putin regime, and by the way. There, there is something happening here in the United States that the press has done a terrible job uh, at informing the American people. The 2014 Sochi Winter Olympic doping scandal is this elaborate operation that, that betrays and humiliates the International Olympic Committee. The three Russian whistleblowers who brought knowledge of this scheme to the world are now in the United States out of fear for their lives. They, are, they have been living since they fled in 2016 uh, under the FBI Witness Protection Program. 
I do not understand why, for example, the the IOC, well, if it were an IOC with some ethical backbone, which it isn't, it would have said to Vladimir Putin, how dare you direct state terror tactics at anti-doping whistleblowers? The reaction in Putin's circle was exactly the opposite. That uh, Grigor Chenkov, uh, the, the, the turncoat, I mean, the, the designer of the scheme and the exposer of the scheme, he, he won a book award for explaining what, what exactly had happened in 2014. Uh, and the Stepanovs, these young people, uh, she was an 800 meter runner for Russia. These, these people have to live in fear uh, of, of, of Putin's assassins. I mean, it, it is sort of assumed that if Putin's FSB can get their hands on, on Grigor Shenkov, uh, they would kill him. Uh, they are referred to as as traitors uh, by by Putin and people in his circle. So this is this is what is going on, and the IOC does not have a word to say about Putin's tactics and his real anti-doping policy, uh, which is to terrorize the uh, the people who oppose doping and who expose the scheme at Sochi uh, that was going on in, in 2014. This is the reframing of this entire issue of Russia uh, and uh, the doping of high-performance athletes and the political motives that are the real driving force uh, behind uh, state doping scandals. And the state doping scandals are, are going to happen in authoritarian countries. The the post-war period shows that there have been four uh, very athletically ambitious uh, nations. Uh, one is East Germany, the other was the Soviet Union, uh, the other is a successor Russia, and the other, of course, uh, is, is communist China. Uh, every single one of these authoritarian regimes has run a state-sponsored doping program because they want to run thousands uh, of of uh, children who have been selected for their athletic potential through these programs, uh, which will will often include doping regimes uh, for for people who are young teenagers. This this is the prototype was East Germany. They they were doping children with female pubescent children with with, with anabolic steroids uh, by the hundreds. This is. <laughs> This is the reality behind the headlines that we see and that focus on uh, the, you know, this wispy, uh, if, if athletically very gifted, I mean, I hesitate to call her a young woman. She's a child. She's a child. And she is, um, in effect, an instrument of state. Uh, if if Camila Valieva had won the gold medal, this Putin would have uh, chalked this up as a propaganda victory. Well, he got lucky because another uh, young female Russian skater managed to win the gold medal recently as, as poor Camila uh, got very nervous and, and failed and, fin and finished fourth. But the, the essential point is the large political arrangement in which this is happening and which is very poorly covered by the media that should be covering it. 
So if we've known about, you know, these doping scandals since, you know, the 80s or, uh, you know, you mentioned East Germany um, and you mentioned there's four, you know, primary actors. Why is it that this continues? Can't we just have, is it just we have to deal with a corrupt Olympics or is it, you know, it just seems to me if, if, if we can identify these are four state sponsors of doping, you know, can't there be a requirement that, you know, other countries maybe have due testing that to, so how do we get to a point where, you know, we don't have to just assume some athletes are on performance enhancing drugs. You, we will never get to that point uh, for the, for the following reason, because the incentives to dope are built into the uh, international elite sports system as we know it. You know, most most famous, uh, most famously the the Olympic movement and the nation against nation competitions that uh, it stages every four years. The other thing to understand. And, and again, this is very poorly covered, uh, if at all, uh, in our media, is that the International Olympic Committee has, has never been interested uh, in, in getting doping out of sport. For the, for the IOC, the doping issue has been a, a public relations problem. And if I were to recite for you and your audience uh, the, the hard numbers uh, about the quality uh, of the IOC's effort to, to drive doping uh, out of Olympic sport, uh, you would see very quickly that this has been a sham. Uh, the World Anti-Doping Agency is, has for years reported something like the, the samples that, that it and its affiliates have tested, you know, maybe 1% have come back positive. I mean, this is a joke. Global regulation of anything is an enormously difficult job. The global regulation of the consumption of doping drugs um, is, is one of these international regulatory tasks, which is difficult to the point of, of being impossible. When you realize that you are dealing with more than 200 countries that are going to, each of which is going to have a National Olympic Committee, each of which by statute now is supposed to have a, a national anti-doping agency, 200 of them. You can imagine the difference in rigor and quality of the, the anti-doping measures that are taken in uh, countries that, that vary in all sorts of ways, including, uh, including not having the money in, in order to do the testing. Uh, there's all sorts of problems with the international regulation of the consumption uh, of doping drugs. Uh, it's, it's a long list. It, it can't be done. And it won't be done so long as the International Olympic Committee uh, exists essentially for the greater glory of itself and what it calls the Olympic movement. For the last 85 years, and this is related to doping, the International Olympic Committee has been a kind of a service organization for dictatorships. It, this started with the Nazi Olympics of 1936. It continued the Mexico City Olympics of 1968, which were preceded by the massacre by the Mexican army of 300 people to make sure the political unrest I saw with my own two eyes in Mexico City in the summer of 68 did not disrupt the Olympic Games. 
Then the IOC sends the Olympic Games uh, to Moscow in uh, 1980 with these fantasies about how Soviet society is going to be opened up by the the arrival of, of, you know, hundreds of thousands of Olympic tourists. Well, that turned out to be nonsense. KGB locked Moscow up like a drum. And so these fantasies about what the Olympics can accomplish uh, happen over and over and over again. In 1981, the IOC gives the 1988 games to the military junta ruling South Korea about a year after the junta had slaughtered 200 people uh, in the city of Gwangju in the, in the south of, of South Korea. Right. Then you get to 2008, and that is the first of the, the Beijing Olympics. This is the, the Summer Olympics Um once again, you have fantasies about how bringing the Olympics to China is going to to loosen up that society, uh, liberalize them. Well, we we know the ending to that story, and, and that is the iron hard regime of Xi Jinping. Then what happens is that the IOC gives the uh, 2014 Winter Games to Vladimir Putin. We've already discussed what happened there. And then the IOC uh, once again, gives this prize to uh, the the Chinese Communist Party, in effect, and you have the 2022 Beijing Winter Games that are going to be uh, concluding in a couple of days. So, the if those are your standards, if you are determined to be completely amoral about choosing your Olympic hosts, which the the IOC has been demonstrably for the past 85 years, uh, since they they collaborated closely with Hitler to produce the Berlin 36 games that were a propaganda triumph for the Nazi regime. If you you choose solidarity with authoritarians, you you are baking in state doping to the entire system. Because these are precisely the authoritarian regimes that they want the games for prestige, they want the gold medals for prestige, and they will put in place systems that employ performance-enhancing drugs in order to make sure that they're doing everything they possibly can uh, to get what for them uh, is the best result in the national interest. So that, uh, for example, the Rodchenkov and, and the Stepanovs, the, the Russian uh, anti-doping whistleblowers, are not the only people who are in hiding for that reason. The, in, hi, in hiding in Germany, having gotten political asylum in, in Germany, uh, is a, an aging uh, female Chinese doctor who saw what was going on in China in terms of state-sponsored doping. Uh, including, of course, many, many children in the 80s and the 90s. And in the 90s, there's all these these doping positives from female Chinese swimmers are erupting every every few years, and that's that's the tip uh, of of the iceberg. Well, she has written uh, a a three volume book about the the doping practice, state sponsored doping practices of the Chinese back in the 80s. Uh, in the 90s, when all these positives were coming out, and Chinese positives have not stopped, by the way. There have been something like 80 uh, Chinese uh, athletic positive tests over the past 25 years, which, once again, is just a fraction of, of what is going on. 
she has to be hiding out in Germany. The, the, anti, the Chinese anti-doping whistleblower, she is hiding in West Germany. And in the meantime, the Chinese state police are intimidating her family, trying to prevent the publication of her book about what was going on uh, in, in China a couple of decades ago. Th- those, are the, those are the hard realities of how the politics of doping work in the international world. So that the, the Chinese regime that, of course, this is a, a, a censoring regime. Well, part of that censorship is the t- determination to make sure that information about Chinese state-sponsored doping way back then does not see the light of day. And this, of course, is the same regime uh, which is, is, is doing much, much worse to, to a million other people. But this is a regime with which the International Olympic Committee is entirely comfortable. There is a long relation, a long, close, warm relationship between the International Olympic Committee and China that, that goes back almost 40 years. Uh, this, too, is not talked about uh, in the media that ought to be reminding the general public about the political circumstances in which these sensational events occur. And so, as I, as I said earlier, I mean, the great irony is that all the attention is on this, the, this poor little girl and, and the trauma she's suffering and the medal she's not going to win, et cetera. Whereas what's really happening uh, is this enormous political arrangement that's absolutely amoral. There's, there, there's no ethical standards. The, IOC and the major international sports federations uh, could not care less about making uh, a real concerted, honest anti-doping effort. Uh, It's it's a charade. Professor Hoberman, thank you so much for your time today and for shedding light on this really interesting issue that, as, as you mentioned, most people probably don't even know you know, the level of corruption and the duration of this. So uh, really enlightening information. Thank you so much for your time today. And thank you all for listening to us on Politics and Life Science Radio. This is Dean Finelli speaking with Professor John Haberman from the University of Texas on some of the scandals that have been involved uh, currently and, you know, in the past with the International Olympic Committee. Uh, Thank you all again for joining us. And thank you again, Professor Haberman. I look forward to speaking with you next week. Take care. Thank you for listening to Politics and Life Sciences Radio with Dr. Dean L. Finelli. For more information, check us out at facebook.com slash politics and life sciences.